Good evening, everybody. Uneducated economist here. Got one of my favorite people, Ms. Ketta from Madison's Lumber Report with us today. Thank you for joining us, Ms. Ketta. No worries. Happy to be All here. Right. So before we get started, a lot of our viewers already know who you are and they follow you on Madison's Lumber Report. But uh, give us a little idea on uh, who you are and what you do. Right. Okay. So it's a newsletter that goes out to industry. It's called Madison's Lumber Reporter. We're published in Vancouver, Canada since 1952. So every Friday, we uh, on Thursdays, we do a market survey. I have an analyst calls around to all the mills, uh, different regions, different species, different products across North America, finds out what's happening from the sawmills and from the wholesalers. And then we publish on Friday mornings and subscribers read that. So our subscribers are industry like the mills and, and that, but also builders and retailers like your company, as an example, uh, banks, government, universities and all that kind of stuff. So um, it's FOB mill price, mill gate price. It's wholesaler price. It's not retailer price, it's not futures. And it's just the cost of the wood. It doesn't include commission, doesn't include freight, doesn't include any of the other, no duty, anything like that. It's purely what the price of the wood is for that week. So what we do is kind of a leading indicator or like an advance notice because it'll be like three months before that wood shows up on the shelf at a retailer right so this is the large volume sales out of the producers and the stocking wholesalers going out to the construction industry and to the retailers right so what you're giving is like the preliminary like this is where the the wood is before we start tacking on all the commissions before we start tacking on transportation and the inventory storage fees stuff like that what you're talking about is the bottom line cost of wood at this exact moment and that's a pretty, that's a really good tool to have if you are going to be like in the industry as far as a supplier like me, or gonna be a home builder coming into the future to know where those prices are gonna end up being because what you're talking about is what's gonna be taking place in the next couple of months. And so that's, a, you know, like it's information you have to have if you're gonna be planning for the future. How long have you been, how long have you personally been doing this, Keta? Right. So I'm a third owner um, and I was hired in 2003 and my boss was already uh, getting on in years quite a bit. And so when he retired, I took over in 2008. So April 17th, 2008 was my first issue. The worst time for forestry and for housing, you know, since the century. Uh, so like I said, we get the data on Thursdays and we publish on Friday, every Friday. And we have our fingertips on the pulse of what's happening with the industry. So like really interesting thing, what you just said about um, the time of lag between the prices that we report and what might be uh, seen on the shelf at a retailer or um, in a few months, right? The, the way that it goes is one of the things that we inform the customers about is what is the order file at the sawmill? Okay, so order file means if somebody calls right now to order some wood, how long does it take before it goes on the line, before it goes into production? When times are busy, when activity, when construction activity is high, an order file might be five weeks or six weeks, right? So that means 
I'm ordering the wood right now. It's not even going to go on the line for six weeks. It's not going to arrive to the customer for another six weeks minimum, right? Times like this right now where it's slower, the order file, it's two weeks, but I think it's going to shrink. Usually right toward the end of the year, at the end of December, it's, it's prompt. Like if somebody orders wood from a mill on December 20th, it's going to go on the line that day or that week and get shipped that week, right? So that's kind of where having the information that we say at the time, telling you what's happening right now, gives you the idea of what's going to happen in a couple of months. Right. And that's like, that is the absolute critical information that you need if you're planning for the future is to know what what's coming. Like, what is the next three, four months going to look like? And having a preliminary report like Madison's Lumber Report is, is absolutely a necessity for that. And the um, mills, like, when, so people, when you want to know about the future, and people go on futures on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange and they look at futures, right? So the November contract just closed and everybody's trading right now in January and also for March, right? So, and the mills play on futures, especially the large operators, the um, usually, like people don't take delivery from making a, a, a contract on futures, right? It's a hedge. So the large operators will have like 40 rail cars that they just roll over and they play with that over the two months. It's legislated that at the end of the contract, like just now, November 15th, futures must end within $1 of cash. And that's what we are, cash, print, right? So it can get quite volatile and fluctuate quite a bit in between the contracts closing. But when that happens on the 15th, then it's telling you what is that price now. Okay. So like right now we see, like, if I remember right, uh, I think the contract was around 422 or something like that. And I believe that's for the January. But what you're saying right now is that the cash price may not be 422. That's for the January contract. What you're paying from like the mill is going to be something completely different from that. I mean, it could be close, but it's not the futures price that they're paying. That doesn't happen until that contract closes. So your information is better than the futures information because you're giving right now information about what the mills are, where most people are looking out either up to six weeks ahead, even almost two months, you know? Yeah, it's, it's very hard to use. Futures is, is quite complicated. And the thing about lumber futures is that it's very small volumes. It's very narrowly traded. It's, it's not very liquid. It's not like copper or the bread WTI with hundreds of thousands of trades a day. So there's, you know, it's a very inside thing where a few folks who have large volumes can really make a difference to the price. You know, it's not quite as open market capitalist as because because there's not enough people playing in it right mm -hmm. but like i said there is a relationship between the futures and the cash right so right now this week we printed down on that benchmark western spruce pine fir wspf kd two by four number two and better which is the largest uh, in the basket of items that are in futures uh, it's U.S. four hundred seventy-five dollars per thousand board feet, and that's down. It was flat at four ninety for quite a few weeks there, 
during October. So yeah, so that's actually not that bad of a disconnect. There's been times over the last couple of years and even previous to that, where it was like a $200 spread between, right. you know, um, cause people short, like you can short futures, you can't short cash. So, mm -hmm. so there, it's all important, but the, the point is when I'm talking to you and for your listeners, and, and let's say, for, for example, the person where you work who does their ordering, mm -hmm. it's not the prices that we do is not for the person walking into a retailer and like, this is the price on the shelf. The price that we do is the price for the person who orders the wood that goes on the shelf. Right. Right. So you're, you're. Your information is really for the industry itself, not for the retail customer. You know, no. Right. So like your information is for guys like me to try and supply myself for the customer or for the big time builder to get their material for their for their major jobs that they have going. Yeah. So you're like, yeah. Customer, I get questions like I'm, I want to put in a deck. And, and they're like, should I buy now or should I wait three months? And, you know, there were some people about a year ago that I was like, you should have bought three months ago. You know what I mean? So mm -hmm. like, yeah, the, the, and, and for the, for the people who just need to get an indication, we do put on our website, the uh, benchmark prices, um, how much they're changing week over week. So you can get an idea, how much did it go down compared to last month? What is it right now? And very small bit of commentary explaining the situation, like I just said, the order file is two weeks, which means that the seller has a little bit of a weaker position in terms of turning down the counter offer from the customer, like the fellow, the person that does the ordering for your company, right? That guy, that person might be, next week might be like, oh, you know, I'm gonna try to underbid by 20 bucks per thousand because it looks like things are going softer. Right. Right? That's kind of what the information that we do is telling you what's happening with the wood on the ground right now. Awesome. So what is going on with the wood on the ground right now? <laughs> what is yeah, happening it, in the industry? It's, it's, it's slowing down because construction is slowing down, uh, of course, in winter, but it's not crashing. Like it's, we're not having a, uh, you know, when the price fluctuates, like we had uh, in early 2020 and then again in 2021, and it went up so, so high, like actual wood was selling for $1,600, but volumes were really low, okay? And then when it recovered down, it went so low. So every time it goes up to this crazy high and recovers back down, it's buy less. So it's starting to moderate in what is the new normal? everybody's asking until even this year people were asking well when's it going to go back down to 250 it's not gonna the wholesaler price of western spruce two by four is not going to go back to 250 the cost of production for the mills has changed completely since 20 2006 okay? and i think that's really important right there that the listeners understand is that that's the reason why it's not ever going to go back to the to the old prices we are now into the new normal because of that input cost going in which is something that was going to change prior to the pandemic i mean that that input cost was going up regardless and so the pandemic just really just you know exempt what am i trying to say amplified it you know <laughs> yeah like it, it brought it out all at once 
right? So, so in a bigger picture, what happened was the U.S. housing boom there, those zero interest mortgages and all that stuff that was happening 2004, 2005, the price of lumber was up high for at that time and the sales volumes were enormous, right? Like, look at it this way. A sawmill would rather sell 40 rail cars at $800 than four rail cars at $1,600 right? So it's not like the sawmills are trying to drive the price up as high as they can. There's a play between what is the volume and the value, right? So during the housing boom, the prices went up and then the volumes were also high. Then when it crashed 2006 and definitely 2008, a muted housing activity and just abysmal lumber sales, but they kept running. The sawmills, especially the large volume operators here in British Columbia, because they were trying to sort of make up that the loss of the low price by selling a lot of volume. And they were also trying to drive out of business their competition and definitely the smaller operators who were not able to keep running wood at a loss for months or a year. Okay. So even until 2015. There was tons of wood everywhere, reloads, wholesalers, stockyards, probably at you guys, you know, at the mill, wood everywhere. You can't raise the price when the supply is huge, right? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. So then in 2019, it looked like things were starting to get this, this change that we we're talking about right now, but it was very incremental. Then of course, with the pandemic and the changes, it all happened at once and people were like screaming that it's some kind of conspiracy. Well, if those prices had changed by 10 or 15% over those 11 years per year, you wouldn't even notice. It's because it all happened at the same time and it all happened in such a short amount of time. So nobody runs at a loss anymore because they learned their mistake. And when prices start going down, when demand starts to drop, they curtail. Mm -hmm. It is very expensive to curtail a sawmill. And it's really expensive to start running back up. So what you're talking about- Right there, that that is no, no. That's actually something to to consider because that was something that I was thinking about as well. Because a lot of people have this mentality that it was just like, well, just fire up the mill and start making lumber again, or just. But it doesn't look, work like that because you got to get trees off the hill, and that's like right there is a logistical nightmare. Just trying to get it from the hill to the to the mill. It's huge. And so, go ahead. It's huge. Like, so a mill 
plans six quarters in advance. A mill plans a year and a half. And the housing market cycle is usually like the macroeconomic conditions are usually also a year and a half, but they don't intersect, like it's just, right? The seasonality of when is construction activity is the opposite time of year of the investment that the sawmills make into their timber, okay? So in all of Canada and in the Pacific Northwest, you cannot harvest during the rain and you cannot go to the forest in the summer when the fire ban is on. So they're harvesting now after the freeze in the winter and in the spring after the rain, but before the fire ban, right? Wow. Okay, and so so, you're, so that's why when people ask about the stock market, I'm like, I'm not, I'm not professionally gonna give you my opinion on that because this is now the, sh the share price, but the mill is already working and planning for getting their timber license and their um, equipment into the forest in a year, next year. And they're looking at housing right now, how much wood am I gonna make, right? So it's very expensive to curtail a mill, like what you said, you gotta get the logs, get all your guys back in the bush, get your workers back in your yard, talk to the truckers who are gonna send the wood out of your yard to your customer, all of that stuff. You don't just turn it on and turn it off. But the ability of the mills to not bear that uh, cumbersome expense and lose money for how long we don't know, doesn't exist anymore. So they've been curtailing. They started announcing in August and there's been quite a bit of production that's come offline, definitely in BC, but also in other jurisdictions. Over the time, as we saw the housing starting to slow down, and then as we know, they're gonna curtail anyway. They always take downtime at the end of the year for maintenance and um, vacations and all that kind of stuff, right? Um, so the response by the industry, like I, what I say is that the industry has matured. Instead of just going logging, running wood, and then trying to get whatever price that you can get for it, they are now responding quite quickly within a couple of months to the changing market conditions, bringing that supply into balance with the demand and keeping the price, like right now it's below 500, but it's pretty close. And it's, it, it might soften toward the end of this year, but the buying, the large volume buying starts quickly and definitely by February prices like seasonally, historically start going up again. Uh, and that's just kind of the uh, instinctual feel that I have for it too, is this like by the end of the winter here that I would see that the low prices are going to be gone and then we're going to start moving back up into, and I say the end of winter, I usually just mean by the end of the year, um, you know, and then come February, like you're saying, January, February, March is when we're going to start seeing the, seeing the prices move back up again. Um, after that, I just really don't know, but that's just the feeling that I have from it. And it seems like from what you're saying, that's kind of what you're getting out of it too. Where's it going to move back up? To is it going to move back up to 500 or 600 or 800, right? Um, I honestly, I think it's probably going to, uh, I mean, if I was to just take a guess at it from the things that I've seen, I'm going to guess that it's probably going to shoot up over 700 for a little bit, um, but probably won't stay up there very long. I'm guessing like the new normal is going to be somewhere between five and 600 per thousand, maybe five and 650. Um, that, I know that's kind of a big range to bounce around between, but that's kind of where I'm at on things. I don't yeah. know. I think it's going to be what I'm saying is between 600 and 800. Six and eight. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I mean, I, I don't think 200 over the course of a year is that much of a range, right? I don't think so either, especially and, nowadays, you know? <laughs> yeah, and, and definitely what you said about like not necessarily staying up at that crest for very long, right? Uh, like coming back down. Um, at the end of last year or at this time last year, I was saying probably closer to 800, but now I'm saying probably closer to 600. No. Okay. The thing is that isn't really in the history that we can't look into the past about is the storms. So when you have this storm activity, it has nothing to do with housing starts. It has nothing to do with interest rates. And it causes a demand for lumber, especially for plywood, either in advance of the storm for boarding up the windows and certainly after for reconstruction. And that's something that nobody can predict. And we know that, like we already saw earlier um, in this season, the storms were pretty bad. Atlantic Canada got hit real hard. There's not a lot of population up there, but still. And then the US, you know, in the Southeast had some real problems. The, the fires that we have in the, in the summertime also, that threatens the timber supply, right? So emergency, things that come up that you can't predict, like the atmospheric river that we had here in BC last year, that again, had nothing to do with any of this, but it caused the inability of the mills to get their product out to market and made the prices go up and nobody could get their wood anyway, it was awful. Yeah, yeah, I remember that was uh, right around January last year, wasn't it? That, no, that, that was, what was it? The first one was in September. Okay. The, the deluge was in November and then yeah the Coquihalla the the highway there um, up here in BC and the railway line were completely washed out because the uh, volume of water brought uh, the rock and the timber down to the highway and destroyed and because a lot of this infrastructure is built along the river the river crested and chewed out the foundation and the structure and just completely blew out five different sections of like absolutely took the highway out. Um, I was looking the other day and they're getting on to rebuilding. It's some amazing engineering work to um, foresee for future possible more storms and more um, impact that hopefully won't destroy it completely. Um. Tell our viewers uh, how important the British Columbia area is for the supply of material coming into the U.S. Right, right, right. So historically, 85% of all Canadian lumber sold into the U.S. Over the time of the duty, that's got chipped away uh, as Canada had to diversify and find other markets. So now it's, it, it wavers, but it's approximately 65% of all lumber manufactured in Canada goes into the U.S. The U.S., manufactures more, somewhat more wood than Canada does, but needs even more than that. So needs to be a net importer. Canada, we have a lot of trees and not that many people. So we don't, there's not enough demand in Canada by far for all the trees that we have. So we have to export. Within Canada, very close to 50% of all lumber made in Canada comes from BC. Then- 50% comes from BC, wow. Yeah, like, that's a yeah. lot. <laughs> and then Quebec is next. Uh, and Alberta's like pretty small, but it's in there. 
right? So you like you think about it, try not to think about it as Canada US because it's North America. Okay, so the prices that we print is North America price. It doesn't matter if you're in Prince George beside the sawmill or if you're in Texas, that's the price. You're, you're gonna have the same price. Your additional cost will be less, obviously, if you're closer, but still the print is the same, right? So you have the Pacific Northwest, the Western spruce, uh, your coastal species, Douglas fir, hemlock, some cedar, comes out of British Columbia, Alberta, Washington State, Oregon, and a little bit out of Idaho. Then you have your Eastern spruce, comes out of Quebec and New York State, and your Southern pine, comes out of the U.S. Southern pine belt, and that's divided into East, Central, and West. I use East as the benchmark because it's made by the most volume. They all meet the building code. It's been standardized since like the 50s. So a builder in North Carolina or Quebec can order Western spruce, Eastern spruce, Southern pine. They all meet the building code. They negotiate by who is their uh, source, get the best deal that they like for the amount of wood that they need for the building projects that they need. And it, all the wood flows like all across through the continent. Kind of flows like water, um, almost in a sense. You know, it was kind of funny because I remember like, I don't know, probably 2019, um, I walked through the yard here at work and every single unit of lumber came from the same mill. And now I have probably 12 different mills, like they are just from everywhere. Um, like, they, they, you know, there's like, they just, I guess they just get it from wherever they can, you know? Um, you know, but the one thing I like about, uh, about following what's going on in the British Columbia area is there's really no other area that has as much of an impact so they are sensitive to the market right so the things that happen up there in the british columbia area that that is going to be telling of what's going to happen throughout the rest of the industry because like you know something can happen in california it doesn't really change the lumber market but if something happens in british columbia it does change you know yeah if something happens with california housing it changes the lumber market california and texas are two huge markets but the uh, supply no um so that's a really good point. So there's a couple of things. People ask me about hardwoods. So now we don't do hardwood prices. Hardwood prices are regional and hardwood is not used for construction framing, right? That would make your house incredibly expensive. So hardwood is used for finishing. Softwood is used for construction framing. It's called softwood. It's actually harder. A lot of the species are actually have a higher stress grade than your hardwoods, but that's just technical. Um, so the, the way that the market works with like, for example, your person that now they're ordering from 12 different mills. In the past, that would have just been like a bunch of administrative work that wouldn't have been worth it, right? The large operators here in British Columbia are heavily invested in the US South now because of what happened with the pine beetle and the loss of the timber. Right. So, so what happened there is the sawmills were built where the timber was, where we had been harvesting and replanting like since before the 50s and in the 80s. And then that's where the pine beetle hit. So those really large volume, low cost operators, 15 of those mills have now closed. Those, 
all 15 of those mills that we that have that have been being said since 1998 they were going to close have now closed they can become something else like we talked about last time the higher value products and the engineered wood and all that kind of stuff but they can't be a um dimensional lumber mill because it takes 80 years for a lodgepole pine tree to reach maturity oh. so, so those companies have invested in the US South. And Interfor now has more manufacturing volume in US South, Southern Yellow Pine, than it does in British Columbia in Canada. Well, it might change because they just bought Ecom. So they've got some mills in um, Ontario now. So it's really a constantly changing landscape between the timber harvest what is happening? Is there a fire? Is there a pest? Is there some kind of restriction on, on the harvest? The manufacturing process, keeping the workers happy, keeping the mill running, and then selling in both to the home builders and the smaller contractors, and then to also to the retailers, like you, like the actual Lowe's and stuff. Very, uh, very interesting, the changes that are taking place, because that's something to, to think about these, these um, you know, these mills that were up in that uh, that high volume area of the British Columbia are now kind of closing up shop and moving down to the southern part of the United States. It's kind of like the fishermen going where the fish are, right? Because that's where the trees are at now. So that's going to have to be like a reestablishing of the supply chain again, like kind of distributing from that particular area throughout the region instead of up in the British Columbia area down into the United States. So there's going to be like almost a shifting of the way lumber is actually transferred through the United States because of that. Well, it's, it's, what I'm super, guessing. It's, it's super interesting because apart from having the impediment of the loss of timber from the pine beetle, these companies avoid the duty because they're right. selling U.S. timber to the U.S. So, so that, that's not like selling British Columbia uh, lumber into the U.S. They don't have to pay duty on that. Um, and what you were saying about the logs, so, so in the same way, the silviculture practices in the US South, because um, uh, Southern Yellow Pine is by and large loblolly pine. There's also a longleaf pine, but it's mostly all loblolly pine. Just like here in British Columbia, your spruce pine fir is mostly all lodgepole pine because that's what we planted. So here in BC, like I said, it takes 80 years for a lodgepole pine to reach maturity. In the US South, it takes 35 years for a loblolly pine to reach maturity. Now it's not the big tree the way we have up here, but you can make a two by four, you can make a two by six, right? And it meets the building code, like I was saying, right? So what happened in the US, uh, in the uh, Southern Pine Belt, was the silviculture practices over those 35 years brought in the last couple of years, a large volume of timber that reached maturity and had to be harvested. So it's so interesting, like to get into like more detail, the variable between the log price and the lumber price, right? So here in BC, you know, it's Canada, it's the West Coast, we've got all our stuff going on. And then in the US South, it's America, they have all their stuff going on. And all of a sudden, a whole bunch of different plantations had to harvest and rolled up to the mill with logs on the truck during the time when lumber was $1,600 a thousand. Right. 
but the supply of the logs was so high that log prices stayed the same. And people were freaking out in 2020 and 2021. They were freaking out at what the log prices were. And, and now that we have the data, the log export, the Sun Pine log export out of the US during last year spiked. Oh, it did. So yeah. I'm kind of curious, it was a spike last year, but the year before that, um, wasn't there a lot of tariffs? Wasn't China giving us the finger on our logs here, like saying, hey, we don't even want it, we're going to Russia um, for yeah. a lot of that? Didn't that like kind of drop a lot of the exports? Because I had a feeling that was one of the reasons why the logs weren't weren't getting the fetching the price that they were, is because that exporting of logs or the raw logs going to China had dropped off dramatically. Um, I don't know if you were, had any information on that. I mean, I, I was trying to find more information on that, but I, I really couldn't like come up with like numbers, you know, to to follow. But anyway, well, China's in an argument with everybody, right? China, <laughs> China like wants to do what it wants. China wants to export logs from Canada, and we don't like. This is kind of the the a lot of the foundation of the duty, because uh, your your viewers probably know this, but. The timber in Canada is owned by the public and managed by the province. So we own all the trees and then the provinces decide how is the harvest gonna be and what is the price, okay? Whereas other jurisdictions, USA, Germany, uh, Europe, Japan, the timber is owned by private owners. So they just do what they want, okay? Um, China had a uh, very high, I think it was 25% duty on plywood. Uh, and they tried to do a lot of stuff with log um, import, but they must import. So they, they have New Zealand and USA, a little bit out of Canada, but not much because the Chinese are value buyers and we don't give our stuff away for cheap, right? New Zealand is kind of Radiata pine is really nice log. It's, it's similar to our lodgepole pine, but New Zealand is in a, a bit of a crummy situation because of politics in Australia and, and that kind of thing. So they don't really get to negotiate, right? So you're right. There was a dip in the U.S. log export in 20, 2019 or 2020. I can't remember right now, but a huge increase during the time when lumber demand was huge and prices were high. Okay. I can only say that they must have got good price for those logs. Must have been. Right? Yeah. The, mills, the mills didn't want to pay the sawmills. I, I think there was just so much volume that the sawmills had what they needed. They wouldn't pay more what the loggers wanted. So then they found another market. Yeah. And that's kind of what I was assuming on it as well. Um, I, in fact, I found the great Wall Street Journal article talking about that exact thing. Um, it didn't go too deep into the exporting of logs, but it certainly talked about the um, basically the glut of pine trees that were down in the southern part of the United States and yeah. uh, really kind of went into some detail on that. And that being the reason why prices of logs, I mean, at least in that particular area, had not moved up You know, with it was because of that glut of logs. Um, so because our viewers are just pretty much stuck on housing and want to know what's going to happen with the housing market, uh, what's your take on that? What's your opinion on going to happen as far as the new builds or just the housing market in general? Um, I know Canada is a little different from the United States right now, so maybe give your opinion on both. Well, actually, so um, 
the Canadian data comes out the previous week to the US data. And it, in the past couple of years, even before that, was tracking really well. So if Canada was down 10%, the US release that came out the following week for the same month was also down. Um, there are some differences, but in terms of the interest rates and stuff, we're moving together. So the housing, the way that it looks to me is similar to what I was talking about, the lumber prices where when it was 1600, but there was not a lot of volume of wood being sold. And then every time the price corrected down and went up and went back down, it was not as extreme. So same thing with the housing. Uh, it really went off on a crazy bonanza for about a year and a half there, and there will obviously be a correction. So it's down now. The data just came out for October. The housing starts are down, but they're not really down by, like they would be down in October anyway, because like you're saying, it's the time of year, right? But they're not really down that bad. It wasn't that much of a drop. And if you take year to date, this year, compared to last year, it's quite similar. The total house, yeah, the total housing starts for January to October this year are almost the same as last year. Single family starts, which is the largest component of home building and uses the most wood, uh, is down a little bit, I think it's like 7% for, for so far this year compared to last year. It's gonna drop more to the end of this year. Like the, the, there's a lag between when the interest rates go up and people cancel or stop buying and it actually shows up in the data, right? right? But it would slow down at the end of the year anyway. And like I said, things don't stay up forever. It's obviously gonna have to moderate. That it didn't moderate by a lot tells me we're still in for some good times to come. The January lumber prices and the March housing release will tell you what next year is going to be like. Yeah. So um, as far as uh, direction right now, you still think we got some some downward pressure going for, for a while here? Or do you think that we're going to be hitting the bottom or we're kind of plateauing here? Or what do you think is happening? Well, it was 490. The Western Spruce was 490 for about four weeks. And the order files were about a month. Now, this week, compared to last week, the price is down to 475 and the order files are two weeks. I'm saying that those mills are going to run that wood and then take their downtime and give their people their vacations. So over the next couple of weeks, they won't be able to print higher. They might be able to stay the same because there's a few operators that have already curtailed to the end of this year. And Quebec takes two weeks. To Quebec shuts completely for two weeks every year at the holidays. And so that's starting to come up now. So if it if it stays at the 475 or drops a little bit, that's hard to say right now. I don't think it's going to go up. And I don't think it's going to drop by like a huge amount, like a, like 80 bucks or something like that. Yeah. So you think housing starts will be slow until when? Uh, the soonest housing starts would start coming back up would be March. So it won't okay. show up in the data until May. So yeah, so we got- but it'll, but it'll show up in my prices in February or January. 
<laughs> yeah, so that's why we have to watch the Madison's Lumber Reports to make sure we see the price moves. Yeah. If you're breaking ground on a home in March, you don't want to have your wood arriving in March. You want to have wood up in advance of that, right? And if your wood is on the ground in February, you're you're going to be ordering it at the beginning of January and right. paying whatever the price is going to be. Yeah, that's very true. Um, so last time we talked, and I and I'm still you know waiting to see this market take off or become noticeable. Um, the uh, cross laminated timber industry. Got any information on that? Is there any new any new news or anything coming out on that? Anything exciting? Yeah, the big thing about all of that uh, advanced advanced building materials, cross laminated LDL, LSL, all those veneers, is the adoption by the jurisdictions to make it in their building code. So yeah. that took a while. There was a lot of pushback from the firefighters because everybody thinks in historical and they think a wood building. And the reason that taller buildings are concrete and steel is because the firefighter ladder can only go to six stories. So if it's a wood building, it could only go to six stories. But CLT and these veneers don't burn like wood. They're actually more fire resistant than concrete. They just char because it's, it's not a timber, it's a manufactured product, right? So the jurisdictions adopted the building code and then after fighting with the firefighters, then the uh, architects had to learn how to use because it's a different application. The um, builders need to retool. It's different. Like when lumber prices were so high and people were like, well, just build with concrete and steel. Well, you think you can use a, you don't use a nail gun on concrete and steel. It's a totally different equipment. So same thing. Um, the awesome thing about the CLT and those is things like community centers, uh, retirement communities, these larger buildings with some open spaces, the um, ability to have a greater span, where it's, when it's concrete and steel, there has to be a certain, the rooms can only be a certain size because there's always gonna be a pillar somewhere, right? The CLT is different. So, um, and on the production side, we talked about this last time, you don't use the number two saw log, the expensive log that makes a dimension lumber to make these materials. You don't use it for, for plywood either. You use peeler logs and peeler logs are not what was denuded during all of that uh, housing boom and the pine beetle. That's something that the harvesters had to like get out of the way to get to the number two saw log. So you have a less expensive feedstock in more plentiful supply for a product that you sell for a higher amount that goes into a more like boutique or uh, custom purpose. Yeah. And so that's what I really like about this cross laminated timber idea is well, I mean, for all the like benefit beneficial reasons for this, the construction of it, it's like, you know, less intrusive for like the actual environment of the job site itself, where if you're doing concrete and steel, you got a lot of equipment, a lot of noise, a lot of, you know, intrusion in with the surrounding area, where cross laminated timber is more trucking these pieces in and then literally off the truck into place. And so there's less, less like environmental, like intrusion for, for the rest of the, uh, 
the rest of the people around the job site. And so I really like that idea behind it, just you know, making the job a lot easier. But then also using a product that really is like inferior, like using these old logs that really is has no use for anything else except for maybe like using it for biomass energy or something like that. Now they're making a use out of it and actually turning it into a building again. So that's like, yeah, to me, that's awesome. Like, I mean, to anytime you can ever take an inferior product and make something superior of it, that's awesome. You know, someone commented on one of our last videos, and here I thought a log was just a log. So yeah. log logs have grays, just like lumber has grays. You have pulp logs, which go to the pulp mill or the pellet mill, uh, peeler logs, you have saw logs, chip and saw, which because a lot of harvesting is mixed species, right? You don't just only get like you just they harvest everything and then they sort it into piles and they get what they can for it, right? Um, so the demand all this time has been for the number two saw log and that's what we planned and that's how it's geared. That's what the mill makes, you know, that's what I'm saying, the mills that ran out of the timber, they were dimension lumber mills because that's where the trees were because that's what we planted. Now it's a big mess, right? So you have all of this underutilized forest bio that previously it was literally in their way. Okay, let me put it to you this way. You're talking about like the CLT and everything, but what about the other end, the residuals that do go into making energy, right? You remember the beehive burners? Okay. Remember that? Yeah. So the chips in the sawdust at the mill used to be an impediment, mm -hmm. right? And they burn it. Uh, so it became, so it was called, so it changed the name, wood waste to sawmill residue to bio. And now those chips, a uh, British Columbia, this is very anecdotal, British Columbia sawmill can make $80 an oven dried metric ton on their chips. Wow. Right? And it used to all go to pulp mills. The pulp mills in North America and in Northern Europe closed over the, those 20 years because the technology advanced so that um, the Southern hemisphere with eucalyptus, a little bit of recycled fiber and our NBSK, the Northern Bleach Sopocraft, they could make good quality pulp. And those very expensive pulp mills up here just closed one by one. Now they're making specialty pulp, fine papers, um, surgical gowns, and uh, biofuel, <laughs> right? So, so things changed on, in the timber supply, which affected the lumber producers, but things also changed at the end for their byproducts that they had to adjust away from at first just burning it, which just released carbon like terrible waste into uh, then to the pulp mills, now to the pellet mills or to like the um, really fancy ethanol type, like liquid fuels. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's amazing the how, how advanced the industry has really come, you know, and especially just over the last decade with some of the things that they're doing here. Um, you know, I just love the uh, the cross laminated timber industry and then the repurposing of all the biomass that they have left over, figuring that out as well, whether they make it into a fuel or, you know, pellets or, you know, just coming up with just different ways of, of making use of that. Um, it's quite it's quite intriguing what the industry has gone through. 
Um, Keta, we have been out here for quite a while here talking. I think we've covered just about everything we could. I'm sure there's some other stuff that our viewers would love to hear about. Was there anything that you wanted to talk about or bring up for our viewers to know or, or to, to um, think about? I think, I think the thing to keep in mind is like we look at the data, we look at the insights, uh, we look at the history to try to understand where we are and where things are going, but there's so much unforeseen um, things, emergencies that come up that we have no warning. And so the, the ability to not, like the like last year when British Columbia could like literally couldn't ship, the port of Vancouver was closed for a couple of weeks. It was awful. It took so long for that wood in the mills that had been ordered in December or in sorry in October to get to the customer and for the price. So uncertainty, I think, is something that we're gonna have to just know. We can look at the housing starts, look at interest rates, look at exchange rate, look at the duty, look at the timber harvest, look at the uh, production volumes and look at the price and sort of try to figure out what where we're at. But all it takes is one wildfire, one job action, one bad storm, and everything goes out the window. Everything changes, yeah. yeah. Keta, thank you so much for taking your time out of your evening to talk with me. If somebody wanted to check out the Madison's Lumber Report, how do they find you? Sure. Well, they can, I think we'll have a link so they can go to my YouTube. Uh, and yeah, and on my YouTube, I have a link to my website. People can request a sample. So if you go onto my website, madisonsreport.com, at the top is a subscribe. You fill out a form. You ask for a sample. We send you the uh, list for that week all 500 individual softwood lumber and panel commodity prices for that week and the market commentary. And then if that depth of information is something that, that people want, they can subscribe to get a log into the dashboard. And then they'll, get, they'll be able to see all of that every Friday morning when it comes out. If they just need to have an idea, look on my website where we post the lumber prices um, we, we do it on a two week lag, but it'll tell you what the actual price is for those six benchmark items, the Western Spruce, Eastern Spruce, Southern Pine, your studs, Douglas fir, and your plywood, and compared to one month ago. So you can see how the market is moving. If you just need to, an indicator, or if you want the full thing, just go to our website. And thank you for, I love talking to you, even if we were- Absolutely. <laughs> You know, we're both on the same page. I mean, yeah. this is what we do. This is, this is, I mean, this is what we, we spend our days doing. And yeah. I tell you, when I get the opportunity to talk to the smartest woman in the lumber industry, I'm going to take that opportunity. So thank you very much for taking your time to, to hang out with the uneducated economist. So, Let's do okay. another one like uh, beginning of February. Yeah, you bet. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, we should all... definitely do one in yeah. February because that's right about the time we should be yeah. seeing some taking place. So yeah. yeah. Exciting right. stuff. Nice to awesome. catch up with you again. Nice talking with you, Keta. Thank you. Okay. Bye.